Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Jane Hong is an assistant professor of history at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Today we'll be discussing her book, Opening the Gates to Asia, a Trans-Pacific History of How America Repealed Asian Exclusion. Dr. Hong, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. To start, could you give us a brief overview of Asian exclusion legislation? Sure. And I think that's a great place to start. So many people are familiar with Chinese exclusion. So most Americans, when asked, can name, or many Americans, when asked, can name the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And so often people think of exclusion as a one-time thing, something that happened in the 1880s with the Chinese. But the reality is that Congress actually expands exclusion to apply to all Asians. And it was a gradual process that took place over the course of about 50 years. And so, you know, many scholars such as Moon Hong Jung, they date the beginning of Asian exclusion even earlier than 1882, the Page Law of 1875. And most scholars would agree that Asian exclusion is completed by the 1924 Immigration Act. And so when you think about the larger story, the two big milestones are really the 1917 and 1924 Immigration Acts. So the 1917 Act creates the Asiatic Barred Zone which essentially bars all immigration from most of Asia. And so there are exceptions to the barred zone. So Japan is exempted, and the Philippines as a U.S. colony is also exempted. So as historians such as May and I have argued, so 1924 is really the turning point when exclusion is completed. So May and I argues, of course, that the 24 Act helps create the category of Asiatic as a category defined by exclusion. Um, the 24 Act, I mean, we know, many Americans know, or many scholars perhaps know, that <laughs> the Immigration Act of 24, um, it modifies the national origins quota system already in place for European groups. And so it really crystallizes that imbalance between immigration for Northern and Western Europe versus Southern and Eastern Europe. And as May and I argues again, right, it completes the exclusion of Asians by bringing Japan under formal exclusion for the first time. Another important aspect of the 24 Act, however, that many people don't pay as much attention to, I think legal scholars pay more attention to this, um, is that the 24 Act entangles immigration and naturalization eligibility for the first time by making the ability to immigrate to the U.S. contingent upon one's eligibility to U.S. citizenship. And most observers at the time, or many observers at the time, recognized that this targeted Asians in particular. So Asians before 1924 are often considered or classified, quote, aliens ineligible to U.S. citizenship for the purposes of state-level laws, so alien land laws and West Coast states, anti-misogenation laws. And I think a scholar named sociologist Denise Sahoni has argued, right, that kind of this term, when it gets appropriated by federal immigration policy, this is really where, right, the idea gets codified at the national level. But... I explore this entanglement because I argue that 
the entanglement of immigration and naturalization eligibility is really important because it really shapes how repeal plays out. Because in order to repeal the exclusion laws, you can't just do something about immigration, but in effect, you have to actually tackle both arenas of law. Because before 24, both of these, you know, immigration naturalization law proceeded rather independently. They had their own case law, they had their own histories. But after 24, they're inextricably entangled for Asians. How does centering on the experiences of non-Chinese Asians enhance understandings of how exclusion functioned? Sure. And this is a great question, because I think one of the great contributions, um, or the main contributions of my book, is that I do focus on non-Chinese Asians. So I do, of course, start the story of repeal in 1943 with the Chinese exclusion repeal, which is, of course, I think, again, probably the best known episode of the many episodes that my book covers. But I argue that the repeal of Chinese exclusion really launches a longer movement that lasts from 1943 through the 1965 Immigration Act, and that actually involves many different Asian groups and their allies over this much longer period. Now, in terms of how exclusion functioned, so again, when scholars write about exclusion, they typically write about the Chinese. And of course, there are many good reasons for this, particularly from the perspective of legal history. The 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act marks an important turning point in terms of federal immigration restriction. And so I'm thinking here about work by scholars like Charles McLean, Lucy Sawyer, Letty Volk, Lewis Hankin, as well as historians like Erica Lee, May Nye, and others. But while most of these scholars are primarily interested in what Chinese exclusion meant for the development of U.S. law and the U.S. immigration state, the gatekeeping state, my book is most interested in what exclusion and its repeal signaled for America's global role particularly vis-a-vis Asia, during a time when the U.S. really becomes, you know, what one scholar calls a preponderant global power. So now with Chinese exclusion, you do get a sense of how exclusion was tied up with U.S. power, or what many U.S. historians like to call U.S. empire. So historians like Gordon Chang, Beth Lee Williams, Paul Kramer have shown that the U.S. doesn't close the door completely. And I think, you know, many scholars who look at 1882 very closely recognize that even the term exclusion is a misnomer. So we're talking more about class-based restriction. So the 1882 system operates more like, you know, a sieve than a wall, right? So there are all kinds of class and market-based exemptions. And so as scholars have persuasively shown, this is because U.S. officials cared about U.S. trade and economic interests overseas in Asia. So if you actually look at the law, any restrictions placed on Asian immigration are actually tailored to accommodate U.S. interests commerce, trade. So in that sense, you could argue exclusion was never really a threat or not a true threat to U.S. economic interests or what some historians would call kind of a fledgling U.S. global power. Because again, in the late 19th century, U.S. power looks very different from U.S. power in the 1940s and after. So again, this idea that U.S. immigration policy always accommodated and often served the interests of U.S. global power. The reality is, though, other cases actually illustrate this relationship more clearly, I would argue. So more than China, Japan really exemplifies how U.S. exclusion and U.S. empire always went hand in hand. So it was no coincidence that the Japanese were one of the last Asian groups to come under formal exclusion. And, you know, diplomatic historians have shown how U.S. presidents went to great lengths to convince Congress to avoid formally excluding the Japanese. They were afraid of offending a rising imperial Japan. Um, in particular because, you know, U.S. officials wanted 
Japanese support for U.S. imperialism in the Philippines. And so, you know, it was one of these kind of tit-for-tat agreements or kind of situations. And so that's how you get the 1907 Gentlemen's Agreement. So, you know, the Japanese would restrict the number of workers it sent to the United States, but in exchange, the United States would not formally exclude the Japanese. So the Japanese would be treated differently from the Chinese, who many Japanese considered inferior. 1924 ends this, of course, the 24 Immigration Act, and some say it planted the seeds for the Pacific War for Pearl Harbor a couple decades later. So you get a very clear sense of how the U.S. exclusion regime always paid attention to the interests of U.S. empire. And finally, in practice, the Philippines is the last major Asian power to come under U.S. restriction, and even then the Philippines are never fully excluded. And the Philippines are really interesting. And so a lot of the work I've been seeing lately, you know, work that's out there already, really gets into the intricacies and the uniqueness of the Philippine case. But it's it's a really interesting question. It's it's a question of how does the U.S. treat its own Asian colony? And during this period, I mean, during late 19th, so we're talking here about post-1898, it's common practice at this time for empires to allow open migration within their borders. Consider, for example, you know, the British Empire. The only reason... Mahatma Gandhi was able to leave India and go to South Africa is that within the British Empire, there was, right, greater or kind of more free-flowing migration. So the U.S. does the same thing. You know, by 1924, all other Asians are excluded. The Filipinos are able to continue migrating unrestricted to the United States because they're not, right, they're not, quote, foreign, right? They're U.S. nationals. And so between 1924 and the early 1930s, tens of thousands of Filipinos and Filipinas come to Hawaii and the U.S. mainland. And this, of course, raises a whole other set of fears among West Coast exclusionists and others, right, fears of a, quote, third Asiatic invasion. And so in order to exclude Filipinos, scholars like James Segredo, Rick Valdos, Paul Kramer have argued, the U.S. has to give the Philippines independence. So in the Philippine case, independence becomes the price of Philippine exclusion. So people usually make this argument with reference to the 1934 Chinese McDuffie Act. So, I mean, all of these cases, China, Japan, the Philippines, they all speak to this kind of entangled or inextricable relationship between empire and exclusion before World War II in different ways from their different vantage points. But by World War II, when this book, my book, begins, I mean, really, U.S. empire... The new version, kind of the uh, the informal version that's taking root, is really no longer compatible with exclusion, full stop. You know, and formal empire itself is on the decline. So formal empire itself, you know, is being dismantled because colonized peoples are no longer willing to countenance formal control by outside powers. And so... The demands of U.S. empire by the 40s, 50s, 60s are different. And so Washington's need to secure the consent and cooperation, the buy-in, if you will, of Asians with U.S. overseas interests could no longer accommodate the demands of exclusion. And so, you know, this is where repeal really becomes viable for the first time in decades. But my book, I mean, you know, diplomatic historians have written around those parts of the story, and I do spend time talking about U.S. foreign policymakers and kind of how they're thinking about empire and how they're thinking about exclusion and its repeal. 
And that's a big part of the story. It's a very important part of the story. But if you actually look at the repeal movement, what I'm interested in also in particular is kind of how Asians and Asian Americans kind of take these new opportunities and run with them. And among the groups I looked at, Asian colonial groups, so in particular Indians and Filipinos, I find among the most interesting. Because, you know, the story of repeal for Asian Americans and Asians is often told as a story of kind of domestic inclusion. So Asian Americans, you know, Indian Americans, they want to be included in the nation. So they fight for inclusion. And that's that's why they're fighting for naturalization. That's why they're fighting for immigration quotas. But in fact, you know, I show that colonial groups, so Indians and Filipinos in the U.S., as well as Indians and Filipinos in Asia, they actually kind of take up the cause of repeal and they redirect it. They kind of instrumentalize it toward their own nation and state building projects, including movements for Indian independence and movements for Philippine independence, kind of thinking about what is the Philippines going to look like after independence, right? So I'm not just interested in kind of these diplomatic stories. I'm also interested in how activists involved in the movement in both the U.S. and Asia kind of how they're using U.S. empire and U.S. power to further their own agenda during this period of decolonization. How did racial liberalism during World War II and the post-war years interact with U.S. immigration and naturalization law? So when we think about the World War II and post-war periods, I mean, racial liberalism is very much um, a theme that you see talked about in many, many arenas. So, I mean, it was in America's best interest to adopt the policy of racial liberalism. And by that, I mean kind of a commitment to non-discrimination, equal opportunity. But I argue that racial liberalism is less a commitment to the actual practice of non-discrimination and equal opportunity than it was a commitment to the appearance, right? The appearance of racial equality and non-discrimination. And, you know, in that, I agree with many, or I echo many scholars um, in a more kind of critical view of racial liberalism. And scholars have made similar arguments about U.S. officials' kind of very symbolic or nominal commitments to black civil rights during the Cold War. So here, of course, I'm talking about scholars like Mary Dipziak, Brenda Gale Plummer. And there are certainly parallels between the performative nature of Washington's commitment to black civil rights and its roughly contemporaneous repeal of the Asian exclusion laws. And I think there's been some work written about this by legal scholars. So thinking about parallels between post-war black civil rights and post-war immigration reform. But I argue that at least two things really distinguish the history of repeal or, or immigration liberalization toward Asia. First, this is the era of Asian decolonization, as I mentioned earlier. And I think this part really needs to be emphasized because, you know, I think many scholars, regardless of field or many historians in particular would agree that decolonization is probably the biggest story of the 20th century or one of the biggest stories of the 20th century. But when you look, when you think about kind of the actual history, Asia is the first site where decolonization happens. And I think most, most people would, you know, acknowledge that. But I think that's really important. So it's the first site where decolonization happens, you know, Decolonization really begins in Africa in the 50s and 60s. It's a much bloodier and more violent process. But that process is also different in terms of the U.S. relationship to it, because the U.S. was 
critically and centrally involved in Asian decolonization in a way that it was not um, in the African case or in the Caribbean case, for example. But in Asia, the U.S. is implicated directly in any number of cases, obviously Korea and Vietnam being two of the, the cases people could name. So as anti-colonial nationalism in Asia is rising, colonized people, as I mentioned earlier, they're no longer willing or as willing to tolerate outside powers that refuse to recognize or at least pretend to recognize their right to self-determination. And here, of course, I'm talking about, you know, there are other colonial powers. So of course, the U.S. is one. We're talking here about the British, the French, the Dutch, as well as the Japanese, which, of course, throws a twist into everything because Japanese are a non-Western uh, imperial power. So this means that the U.S. has to tread very carefully and has to kind of repackage itself as not just anti-racist and committed to racial liberalism, but as part of that, you know, the U.S. tries to really repackage itself as anti-colonial, so on the side of non-white colonized peoples. And, you know, U.S. and the world scholars have done a lot of really good work in this area. And so if you think about how the U.S. tries to persuade Asian audiences, I mean, there are several things they do. Among these, number one, the United States pledges to give the Philippines independence uh, in 1946. That whole timeline gets thrown off. The process gets really contentious because of the Japanese invasion of the Philippines right after Pearl Harbor. And so kind of that's one part of the story I tell, how Philippines' um, naturalization campaigns become entangled in these debates over the timeline and process of independence. But so the U.S. gives Philippines independence, and it also, you know, it, it's kind of one of these public relations campaigns that, again, U.S. and the world has done a lot of work staff. So that's one thing that is different about history of the seal vis-a-vis black civil rights. It's a very kind of targeted audience, right? So U.S. officials during and after World War II, they're thinking about Asians as this particular audience, as a place of, quote, ferment, right? That's on the verge of great change. And U.S. officials are thinking very specifically about that region. And number two, and I alluded to this earlier, what's different about history of repeal and Asia in particular is unprecedented U.S. involvement in Asia. The U.S. military is is everywhere <laughs> in Asia uh, between kind of World War II and the 1960s. So you think about where U.S. military troops go, they go to many places. And they're integral again, they're integrally involved in fights across Asia. And so scholars like Tosh Fujitani, Julian Goh, um, Simeon Mann, done a lot of great work thinking about kind of what U.S. empire in Asia looks like, both during and also after World War II. And so scholars have talked about this, you know, as U.S. empire building in Asia. And kind of one of the arguments is that this is a new kind of empire, right? Because, again, colonized peoples in Asia, they're not going to put up with formal empire any longer. And so the U.S. can't just come in with military troops ablazing. They do do that, but they can't come in and, and kind of set up formal imperial structures. Instead, they have to do things in a sneakier, kind of more versatile way. And so that's where informal empire comes in. And I think sociologist Julian Goh does a really good job kind of laying out the very diverse ways that U.S. empire operates after World War II and the many sneaky ways in which it operates, which in many ways is its genius, right? It takes all different forms. It's tailored to different situations. U.S. kind of empire in Korea looks different from kind of U.S. imperial attempts, neocolonialism in the Philippines, right? And again, you can use all, ter- all kinds of terms to describe what the U.S. is doing, but 
you know, more broadly, I think we could call this kind of an informal, informal U.S. empire. And this is where my book's overarching argument comes from, right? The idea that Asian exclusion of appeal serves as a tool of U.S. empire. Or more precisely, you know, the demands of U.S. empire impel repeal and make repeal necessary, right? So this is not, again, that idea, which I suggested earlier, that it by itself is not, I think that's not surprising to most people. But again, I'm more interested in what people do with this. <laughs> what do they do with the opportunities and the possibilities that the demands of U.S. empire create? So the United States, after World War II, has this kind of newfound global position. And so at a heightened global in U.S. global power, what can people like, you know, Asians in Asia, what can Asian Americans, what can kind of previously marginalized, disenfranchised peoples, what can they now do that they couldn't do before? Like, what can they do with U.S. power to instrumentalize U.S. power toward their own goals? And so, again, this is where colonial cases are particularly interesting, but I also look at how Chinese and Japanese Americans in the United States are also using kind of U.S. power in service of their own goals. So it's not simply an Asian story, but it's an Asian-American story. It's an American story. So it's a trans-Pacific. In that sense, that's what makes it a trans-Pacific history. But again, I think, and I should say this, I should have mentioned this earlier. I mean, what really I think makes this history trans-Pacific, I mean, I spent time, significant time in Philippine and Indian archives. And so if you look at how involved Asian colonial governments were in the repeal movement, I think most people would be surprised. I don't think most people realize just how involved these other actors were, these non-American actors who are not even in America <laughs> in many cases. And I think this actually segues into your next question. So I'll stop there. How does your work scope studying Asian actors on both sides of the Pacific broaden understandings of the U.S. repeal movement? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I'm not just interested in what U.S. officials and lawmakers are saying to one another. And I do spend significant time talking about kind of interbranch relations of Congress versus the executive. And I'll, and I'll say more about that in a bit. But that's very important. Obviously, the people who are determining or deciding what bills pass and which bills don't, this is Congress in the United States, in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, right? So, of course, that's a very, I mean, that's kind of, the centerpiece of the story. But who is actually doing the lobbying? Who is coming to the hearings on Capitol Hill? Who is doing the behind-the-scenes lobbying? Who's having private conversations with U.S. officials and kind of pressing for certain legislation to pass? Oftentimes, it's actually Asians, people from Asia, representing Asian governments or Asian states. And so... Using Asian archives allowed me to see how Asians in Asia, so the other camp, right, the other side, how they kind of seized upon Washington's imperial interests in repeal to serve their own projects. And what these archives revealed is that Asian actors played a bigger role in these campaigns than traditionally thought. And I think for the Chinese exclusion repeal campaigns, there are scholars who have done work showing kind of a greater role by Chinese officials. So I'm thinking here about historian Meredith Oyen, for example. So by bringing in the Asian actors, I mean, this is what really makes the study trans-Pacific. And it doesn't just make the study trans-Pacific. I mean, it's what makes the movement <laughs> actually trans-Pacific. 
So when we think about interest convergence, right, which is, I think, a very kind of well-known idea. So I'm interested in how the interests of repeal advocates and reformers in the U.S. converge with the interests of white elites, right? And that's kind of the model that Derek Bell applied initially to black civil rights movements. But interest convergence also applies, I would argue, in a trans-specific setting. So how did the interests of repeal advocates in the U.S. converge with the interests of anti-colonial actors in Asia? And so this is where, right, the Filipino and Indian stories uh, really become relevant. So how did Filipinos and Indians try to instrumentalize the field in service of their own nation and state building projects? So I alluded to this earlier. I'll say a little bit, I'll just say a little bit about the kind of more specific, specific dimensions very briefly. So for Indians, you know, I argue that, or I show how the Indian colonial government in India becomes really involved in lobbying for an Indian immigration and naturalization measure, because many of them actually believed that by promoting passage of Indian exclusion appeal in the United States, that they could actually help further the cause of Indian independence globally. Because the idea was, if the U.S. Congress passed a bill that recognized Indians as a separate as a separate people and which gave Indians certain rights, that this would actually increase India's prestige on the global stage, and in some ways could actually even promote the cause of Indian nationalists who are fighting for immediate independence from Great Britain. It's easy to forget, but World War II, when the Indian campaign really takes place, World War II is kind of, you see the British and the Indians at an impasse, the Quit India Movement, uh, Gandhi, Nehru, they're in jail for most of the war. And so Indian nationalists in the United States and Indian nationalists in India, they're looking for ways to enlist the help of the United States and other really important global powers to kind of help move the Indian independence movement along. And so it's a really... It's a really interesting story, um, and I think even I was surprised to some extent by kind of how Indians were thinking about this repeal bill pending in the U.S. Congress in Washington, D.C. And the Indian campaign actually comes to involve Indians in India, Indians in the United States, white allies, black allies in the United States, as well as the British, right? Because the British are integrally involved in this campaign as well. So it's a really interesting story where you see these dynamics play out, where the United States is not the main colonial power, right? The United States has a kind of strained relationship to India, and it also has, right, an alliance with the British during World War II. And so you see Washington trying to navigate both of those interests in really strange ways sometimes. So the Indians' rights for Indian independence. For the Philippines, right, during the same period, World War II, I mean, Philippine colonial officials, they're basically predicting that the islands will go bankrupt once the Philippines becomes independent due to changes in U.S. tariff policy, etc. So the idea is, where is the money going to come from after independence? And so for Philippine officials, elites, political elites, they're basically looking to cultivate Filipinos in the United States as a kind of, as a new source of revenue. Because the idea was, okay, if tariffs are no longer, or trade policy is no longer going to enable this whole patronage system that's been um, ongoing in the Philippines, you know, Filipinos are already sending an incredible amount of money in remittances. So I think by the 1930s, 1940s, Filipinos in the U.S. and Filipinas are sending something in the order of kind of millions of dollars to the Philippines. And so the idea was, okay, 
maybe the U.S. Philippine community can be kind of a new source. And so Philippine officials, they get involved because they think that maybe by helping secure a Philippine naturalization bill in the U.S. Congress, they can help kind of win the loyalties and goodwill of Filipinos in the U.S. So it's kind of their way of endearing or kind of cultivating these relationships with the overseas Filipino community. Right. So it's kind of a, it's another strange, very interesting story. And both of these campaigns culminate in the Loose Seller Act in 1946. Both of these campaigns are highly contentious. That said, and I'll just say this very briefly, in making the scope of the book trans-Pacific, I don't, like I said before, I don't downplay or ignore the reality or the importance of politics in the U.S., whether they be partisan, interbranch, bureaucratic, regional, or other. You know, I, I actually love, I really enjoyed this part of the story, right? And I think political scientists like Daniel Titchener, historians like Donna Kabacha, right, they have done a lot of great work to kind of show these internal struggles over immigration policy, like who gets to decide who gets to enter the United States and how it's, you know, it really, it's contentious now, obviously, but it was contentious then too, for different reasons and in different ways. And finally, right, Southern Democrats, I mean, they are the number one opponents of any of these immigration liberalization bills. But very importantly, Southern Democrats in Congress are also the main contingent that oppose black civil rights. And this voting bloc is extremely powerful. They have a lot of very uh, influential positions in the committee system. And focusing on them as a kind of opposition group, right, it allows for greater insight into how these two movements, so black civil rights on the one hand, Asian exclusion repeal on the other, how they intersected. Since the movements, both of them had many of the same opponents. Some of them had, you know, they actually had some of the same proponents. And so I show kind of what I describe as an ambivalent interplay between the two uh, movements and between activists in the two movements, where you kind of see clashes, competitions, sometimes cooperation at others, right? But kind of portraying or kind of giving a more nuanced view of the relationship between them. What modes of political influence did Asians and Asian Americans employ to bring about repeal? What are some limits repeal activists faced? Yeah, this is a great question because it really gets at the heart of the story. So Asian Americans, they didn't have electoral power. Like they didn't have votes because anyone born outside the United States couldn't become a citizen. So was ineligible for U.S. citizenship and therefore could not vote in federal elections. So in the absence of electoral or formal political power, what do you do? What are your alternatives? And so um, you have things like patronage, more clientelist models of influence. And so in many cases, in many of these campaigns, Indian activists, for example, they forge these partnerships with certain congressmen. And they're highly dependent on these congressmen to kind of lobby their cause for them. But of course, these kinds of political models have major pitfalls. Like, how do you keep someone invested? What leverage do you have to keep your congressional patrons invested and active on your behalf? What leverage do you have, period? And of course, you know, on the national level, Asian Americans had very little electoral power. But in particular places like Southern California, for example, you do see a different kind of political relationship develop. Because in some places, Chinese Americans, for example, they do vote in larger numbers. And so there are exceptions to this. Hawaii, of course, is a very different case. And uh, in the last chapter, I talk about how Hawaiian statehood and the election of 
Chinese and Japanese American senators and Congress people from Hawaii. I mean, it changes the dynamic of Congress in many ways and in ways that affect and shape immigration legislation in the 1960s in ways that haven't really been uh, looked at as closely. And so this story does change over time. You know, historians love change over time, right? 1940s and 1960s, a lot of things change. America, Asian American politics themselves change, but I think that central problem of lacking electoral power, right, that, that continues to be an issue. And so Asian American politics, what do some lobbyists do? So I show how some Asian American advocates, they adopt all kinds of creative strategies to amplify their position in, in Washington, D.C. So if they're testifying before a congressional committee on Capitol Hill, people like the JACL, um, the Japanese American Citizens League, uh, Mike Masayoka, they position themselves as unofficial spokespersons for Asia, right? They're kind of speaking for the Japanese people, for example. That enables them or they try to use that strategy to amplify their position. So they could claim to speak for kind of specific Asian groups or a more general Asian public. For some Indian American activists, most if not all of whom were not U.S. citizens during the early 1940s, so during World War II, right after World War II, Right. So some Indian American lobbyists, they forged partnerships with political groups in India. So the India Legal America, based in New York, had an unofficial partnership with the Indian National Congress and kind of nationalist figures like Gandhi and Nehru. The India Welfare League, another New York-based Indian American group, forged a partnership with the Indian Muslim League, based in Bombay, India. And that's a really important part of the story, too, thinking about kind of how these Asian Americans who lacked power in the United States, right, they tried to kind of draw upon constituencies in their homelands. So, I mean, there were many creative, right, strategies. They adopted many creative strategies, some of which I investigate in my book. But ultimately, the limit of these kinds of strategies, particularly racialized strategies, right, strategies where you try to position yourself as, as a spokesperson for Asia. And the reality is nobody, right, Asian American advocates, and nobody really, nobody else, you don't get to control what happens in Asia. <laughs> so if you're rooting your legitimacy and your position, if you're rooting those things or facing those things on kind of international developments or what's happening in Asia, developments, events happening over there, the reality is these events and developments are totally outside of their control. So some of the most obvious examples are kind of folks who become, who fall victims to these limits. Chinese Americans, after the creation of the People's Republic of China in 1949, Chinese Americans come under all sorts of scrutiny by the U.S. anti-communist state in ways that really limit their ability to lobby and kind of what strategies they can use, what they can say, what they can do. Japanese Americans as well. I mean, I show how Japanese American lobbyists, they really enjoy the height of their influence during the U.S. occupation of Japan after World War II. But after that, after, after the occupation ends, I mean, Eisenhower doesn't really care much about Japan uh, after 1952. And that makes it very difficult for Japanese American lobbyists to gain any traction because Japan's not a priority anymore after the occupation ends. And so again, you really see clear examples of how, you know, these strategies can work at very specific times, but depending on how the winds change and how Washington's priorities change, you really don't get a say you really have to adapt kind of to external circumstances. How does studying immigration and naturalization law reveal fissures, for example, between classes and religions and between homeland and diaspora? 
a great, this is a great question. I mean, for me, I think paying attention to these differences really helped me realize how even within a really small community, there's an incredible amount of diversity. So Indian Americans are probably the best example of this. I mean, they are a really small community in the United States, really small population, fewer than three to 4,000 in the U.S. by World War II. And the number of Indian Americans who are involved in the Washington-based campaign for repeal is even smaller, right? It's largely centered around kind of two New York-based Indian American organizations and with some support from West Coast Indian populations, so Sikh farmers who contribute a lot of the funding, actually, for the campaigns. So region also gets, right, to be a big part of the story. Because a lot of the folks I talk about are East Coast-based, or somehow they kind of base themselves on the East Coast. Because in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, right, this wasn't like, a, I'm going to hop a plane. Like you, People do hop planes, right? But it's, it's much more challenging and much more difficult, especially for farming communities in California to send people to D.C. every time there's a hearing. So in the Indian case, there are, like I said, less than three to 4,000 right, in the United States by World War II. But the Indian campaign is this site of major division. So work by scholars like Vivek Ball to get at a lot of these differences. You have Hindu PhD intellectuals who are working as professors in the same campaign as kind of working class Muslims. Punjabi Sikh farmers, right? And they all have very different interests. Like they're generally speaking, most if not all of these groups support Indian independence from Britain. I mean, this is, I think that's probably one of the commonalities, one of the few commonalities that they share. They all want India independent. But their visions of independence look quite different and their priorities are very different as well. And so what really informs their different positions in the repeal campaign are questions like, are they planning to stay in the United States? And that's a huge dividing line. Because for folks, you know, if you're a Sikh farmer in California, Congress's decision as to whether to grant you citizenship eligibility, that's not just an abstract or symbolic kind of measure, right? That whether Congress passes that law can determine whether you get to hold on to your land, right? Whether you're able to work affects whether you can get a job, whether you can feed your family next year, right? These are really, so it becomes, right, it's a material, it's an immediate kind of urgent kind of dilemma. Whereas if you are right, an Indian intellectual who's planning to return to India right after it becomes independent or right after the war, you're not as interested in citizenship eligibility or immigration quotas for any practical reason, right? For many of those folks, again, like they're interested in the symbolic value of repeal, but they're not really planning to benefit. They're not interested in benefiting from any of these concrete gains. And so you see these fissures play out on Capitol Hill. And there are congressional hearings where you actually have different contingents within the Indian American community fighting, right, in front of a room full of Congressional lawmakers, you know, some of them are very confused, right? And like, it's real, like it's real to all of these people, right? So they're all fighting for the repeal bill, but for different reasons. And it's not less urgent necessarily. It's not that it's more or less important to one group or another, but the states, the states of passage are quite different. And this plays out in different ways in all of the campaigns. But I think in the Indian campaign is probably the most, one of the most kind of stark uh, examples of how these differences actually matter for people's lives. 
In what ways do congressional debates over immigration legislation serve as a proxy for contests over citizenship, national identity, and America's proper role in the world? Small question. (laughs) Straightforward answer. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think anyone alive today, anyone in America today, or anyone kind of following U.S. news, can testify to the many diverse meanings that Americans often ascribe to U.S. immigration law, as well as its enforcement. And we also see every day in the news how these debates and questions like, who gets to enter my country? Who gets to be a citizen of this country? How for many people, like, these aren't just, you know, these aren't intellectual exercises. Like, these for many people are deeply existential questions, right? They get at the heart of what America is, you know, and they evoke deep, often visceral feelings, right? The sticky stuff that Benedict Anderson talks about, like, who gets to be part of my imagined national community? And I mean, people feel that way today, but people also felt that way in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. It's not like immigration was not a controversial topic back then. I mean, anyone who studied history knows that immigration debates are historic, they have historically been extremely contentious, and not just in the U.S., but across the world. Um, and I do talk a little bit about how, you know, the U.S. Asian exclusion regime, you know, historians have done this work, um, Australian historians in particular. It's part of a much larger kind of regime of what Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds call, right, a global regime of white supremacy. So you have the white Australia policy in Australia. You have restriction laws and anti-Chinese laws, anti-Japanese laws in Canada, right? So it's very much not just an American story, but I mean, obviously, I'm most familiar with the American story. So in America, very visceral. In the mid-20th century, when you think about how many lawmakers are thinking about Asia, I mean, these debates simultaneously raise all kinds of moral questions about America's responsibility to the world, especially to people who lived in places like East and Southeast Asia. Today, obviously, we're talking about places like Central America, places where the U.S. has been fundamentally active, right? Where the U.S. has not just, you know, kind of dabbled on the sidelines, but where the U.S. has been directly and undeniably formative in how these regions have developed. And indeed, in how these regions are living, how people in those places are living now, right? So historians are all about showing how the past is not actually past, right? And that U.S. actions in the 1980s, the 1960s, the 40s, or the 1890s, right, still have ramifications that play out many, many decades later. And so as much as we talk about that today in, in 2019, like people were talking about that, or I think some people were talking about that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like, what responsibility does America have to these places in the world? And what does that mean for how Americans should conduct their policymaking? One of the last things I'll say is, when we think about the mid-20th century and U.S. involvement in Asia in in particular, I mean, there's a very um, well-known saying, I think this is usually attributed to historian Gordon Chang. So Asians came to the United States because Americans first went to Asia, right? Asians came to the United States because Americans first went to Asia. So the idea here, right, I think, is that migration and empire have always been entangled. And the disruptions that the U.S. creates in other parts of the world 
have ramifications. I think one of the clearest examples, of course, is Southeast Asia. You think about, right, this is a story that happens after the 65 Immigration Act, but, you know, refugee displacement and migrations from Southeast Asia because of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam Wars in Southeast Asia. I mean, that's a very clear example of how U.S. involvement creates unexpected kinds of migration. But the bottom line is, you know, I frame repeal as a highly ambivalent story. And, you know, I think I agree with many historians in this way. The bottom line is U.S. lawmakers were not trying to increase Asian immigration with any of the laws that passed. And in fact, even by 1965, David Weimers has argued, right, it's the fact that so many Asians were able to enter under the 65 Immigration Act, people like my own mother and my own father, and then the rest of my extended family, right, this was not part of the plan. It was an unintended. I mean, but I argued that was true. Basically, that was one continuity of the entire appeal movement, all these different laws that I talk about, the 43 Chinese Exclusion Repeal, 46 Louis Seller, 52 McCarran-Walter, and 65 Immigration Act, as well as the Refugee Act and other laws that passed in between. The goal was never to actually meaningfully increase the number of Asians immigrating to the United States. That is what happened, but that was an accident, right? This is not the intention. This is never the point. The point was U.S. power and how to accommodate the demands of U.S. empire during this period. Like, that's really kind of the driving force. And so what happened after that, or as a result, is just, you know, unintentional, accidental, circumstantial, situational. And I end the book by talking about the brain drain, kind of the brain drain debate of the 1960s, and how that intersects with immigration debates in the U.S., right? But the bottom line is, yeah, immigration's always been one of the most fascinating, to me at least, one of the most fascinating arenas. Immigration and naturalization, I should say, because they're so fundamental to how a nation defines itself. And so, you know, I think the last thing I'll say, the very last thing is this book is about the 1940s, 50s and 60s. But I mean, the 65 Immigration Act, as we've seen in the news even now, still forms the basis for a lot of our immigration policy today. So in that sense, even this story is very much not past. Right? It still very much informs our present. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. This is a great conversation.